1607, a separatist group left the Church of England. That was, in those days, illegal. They found refuge in the Netherlands under more lenient laws, first in Amsterdam and then in the city of Leiden. For over a decade, this growing congregation prospered in that city under the faithful leadership of Pastor John Robinson. Nonetheless, in September of 1620, a minority of that church set sail for Plymouth, from Plymouth, England for the New World. William Bradford, one of the leaders of the voyage, wrote this. So they left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place nearly 12 years. But they knew they were pilgrims. And looked not much on those things, but lifted up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. I love that phrase. They knew they were pilgrims. I would not commend all of the motivations for which they left on this mission. But as a follower of Christ, we certainly celebrate the pilgrim heart when we see it. Viewing themselves as pilgrims, seeing heaven as their true homeland, these believers were willing, number one, to sacrifice ease and safety. Secondly, to accept the considerable risks of this venture. And thirdly, to act in utter dependence upon the Lord. That's the pilgrim heart. So facing a 65-day voyage at sea, they didn't know it would be that long or if it would end in the middle of the ocean. But facing a 65-day voyage at sea with no guarantee they would survive the hostile forces that awaited them on American soil, did you hear it? They calmed their fearful hearts in God. This pilgrim spirit unites these voyagers with God's people through the ages including the Israelites who we are studying right now, who left Babylonia for the promised land with Ezra the scribe in 458 B.C. I invite you to the seventh chapter of Ezra as we return to our, in our journey through this book, verse by verse. We've come to chapter 8, but just remembering in chapter 7, as we looked at this chapter last week, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6 we were introduced here to Ezra the scribe, and we are, it is stated in verse 6 that he went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. He makes this petition, and the king grants him this petition, not because the king's such a nice guy but because the hand of God was on Ezra the scribe. Verse 7, and there went up. We see the phrase again. There went up, back to Jerusalem, also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. Who's going up? Who are they? They're focused on the temple. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart, remember these three things, to study the law of the Lord. To do it. Not simply know what it says, but to live it out and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. This was his focus. This was his mission. And this gifted, skilled teacher of the Word makes this journey with these people on this 
four-month trek. Now, as you come to chapter 8, as we come to chapter 8 this morning, we are looking at the details of this journey. So the journey's been described in succinct form. This is the big situation here in this section of the book. But now we come back in, we come to chapter 8 and we look at the details of this journey. The record of this exodus reveals the heart of a pilgrim in the grand quest to magnify God's name among the nations. That's what's happening here in chapter 8. We'll work our way through it fairly quickly and then draw some conclusions about this passage. We find, first of all, in the first 14 verses, a register of those who returned with Ezra to the promised land from Babylonia. Verse 1 reads, These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. With me, Ezra's own account of this event. And he describes then those who come with him, verse 2, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Now just a moment. Phinehas and Ithamar were grandsons of the first high priest, Aaron. And so Gershom and Daniel had priestly families. In chapter 6, the second temple is completed 58 years earlier, and the need remains, though there are Levites there, there are priests that are ministering there, there is need for more temple servants to revive the worship. There is need for a master teacher to come, and that is Ezra. And so these individuals make the journey back with him. The middle of verse 2, we continue on, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pehath Moab, Elahonai, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Adon, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelemith, the sons of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Azgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Othai, and Zachor, and with them 70 men. Now they've lived in Babylonia for a long time. These Israelites coming in captivity, you might think long ago would have lost their genealogical records, but they have not. We remember that only Aaronic, Aaron, only Aaronic priests were qualified to serve at the temple, and only those of the tribe of Levi were authorized by God to help them and to handle the items at the temple, to deal with the temple courtyard and the storage areas and the grounds. And the Jews knew who these men were. The numbers here, nearly 1,500 men are listed here. Later we'll meet 38 Levites and 220 temple servants who still identify themselves as of the lineage of those that David had chosen to help the Levites. And then there's women and children. 
So somewhere in the range of, let's say, 5,000 people returning. 50,000 returned on the first wave. We have now perhaps 5,000 people that are returning to the land. Preparations for the journey are now take up a major part of this chapter, beginning at verse 15. The first preparation is to address a crisis of leadership. Verse 15, all these people I gathered to the river that runs to Ahava, perhaps a canal, and there we camped for three days. So the journey has begun. Now remember, we're in a day of no mass communication, so the word gets sent out and you wait and see who's going to respond. I imagine this has got to be something of a nervous time for Ezra. Will anyone come? But they wait there in this encampment, anxious to see who will respond and go back to the promised land. Who will have that pilgrim heart and hear this call? Well, As people began to arrive, and certainly there was encouragement in that, it became obvious not many were going to come, not compared to the first time, only perhaps 10% of that number. But Ezra faced an even more disappointing setback. Verse 15, he says, As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that none of the sons of Levi, I found none of the sons of Levi. There was nobody there connected genealogically to Levi And so the problem was that no one was qualified to serve at the temple among this new group. The second temple stood. It was in use. But Ezra anticipated teaching the law. And thus he anticipated an increase of activity at the temple. And there are no Levites here to deal with the situation there. But it's also probably the case that Ezra is thinking, I need these Levites now. Why does he need them now? Why does he need them for the journey? There are vessels that are going back for use at the temple. And there is wealth, money, cash that's going with them for use at the temple. Do you remember when the Israelites left Egypt and they brought with them the tabernacle through the wilderness? The Levites always carried the tabernacle. The Levites carried all of the pieces. They were the ones in the middle of the line of the 12 tribes of Israel who carried all of these holy things. They were authorized to do that. No other tribe was. They have a lot of stuff to get to the new temple here. And they don't have any Levites to carry it. Well, Ezra was a great scholar of the word. He was also a capable leader, we learn in verse 16. For he then sends for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jarib, El-Nathan, Nathan. We have the same issue going on in our culture all the time. Lots of different names, or lots of people by the same name. But Zechariah, Meshulam, Leading men, and notice this, and for Jerarib and El Nathan, another one, who were men of insight. That is, they were wise individuals. They were individuals with diplomatic abilities. He sends these individuals, verse 17, he sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Cassiphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Cassiphia. Namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. So if we picture this here, there's this encampment, and Ezra instructs this delegation from the encampment to travel to Cassiphia. We don't know where it was or what was going on there, but probably some type of temple Uh, Not not in the formal sense of the term, but some type of sanctuary. Perhaps a place where there was even teaching historically of the Levites and what their work was. But no temple here, of course. That's in Jerusalem. But something's going on there where he knows there will be Levites there. And he sends this delegation to influence Ido, the leader, to see if he can get some people to come with him to the promised land. Can you imagine that sales job? Uh, this This is tough. None of these Levites at Cassiphia had volunteered for this trip. 
we would assume that they had heard about it. There was no temple of God here in the land of Babylon, so they had learned other trades by now, a couple of generations removed from the time when their ancestors had served, depending on how you look at it, even longer. They had not trained to serve at the temple and may not have welcomed the rather mundane tasks that would become theirs if they returned to the land with Ezra. Remember, they're in in, in a fairly comfortable position here in Babylonia at this time. And there is Iddo standing before these Levites and saying this, gentlemen, there's an encampment near here. And there's about 5,000 people of our people, Israelites, preparing to travel 900 miles and take up a new life in the promised land. Anyone want to join them? You know, they'd already kind of said no. Now they're being, now the appeal comes from Ido, their leader. And under Babylonian, or under Persian rule, Babylonia, we know, was, as we've said often, fairly prosperous. Esther and Mordecai were, took place under the, that was the previous king. And so the, the Israelites, by this point, had some standing, they had some security. From everything that we can determine historically, they were prospering in the land. When you put this all together... You say, there is no way anybody's going to say yes to this proposal. Only God could move their hearts to leave the comfort of their lives and take this risky journey. Verse 18, that's just what he does. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. They got 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and his sons, 20. So they come up with 38 Levites from this one place. Let's say, okay, I'll go. I'll take this risk. I'll do this. Not only that, but besides, verse 20, 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, they were all mentioned by name. He's not going to give us 200 names here, and am I thankful for that? That would lead to a a real decision to make if we read all the 220. but, But he has them, and they go. Now these temple servants had been set in place by King David long ago. That is, these are descendants of those individuals who were to help the Levites in their work. So the Levites, their tribal identity gives them divine authorization to serve as what? As temple guards. To guard the gate. As fire stokers and wood pilers for the sacrifices. As bankers to assist with sacrificial offerings and to provide maintenance. And these temple servants come alongside of them and aid them in this work. So we have the 220 and the 38 that join the 5,000 at the canal. That's problem one or issue one as they're preparing for the journey. Issue two now at verse 21 is seeking God's protection. Seeking God's protection. Verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, quote, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And so we fasted, and we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. This is really counterintuitive, isn't it? You are preparing for a 900-mile journey 
largely by foot. Now, perhaps everybody got to ride a donkey somewhere along the way, but, or in a cart or something of the like, but you're going to have to be going very slowly, a lot of time walking for 900 miles. It's going to take them four months. Is the first thing that you do not eat? Seems like the first thing that you do is make sure you get a really good last meal back in Babylonia. But they set food aside because fasting is a choice not to eat food in order to devote oneself to prayer independence upon God. It's a unique way of saying, God, I need you. And there may be somebody here, that's really what you need to do. Perhaps what I need to do. As we come to moments of tremendous need, we can set food aside and plead with God in a unique and focused way. In prayer, seeking His dependence. Now let me tell you, this was a dangerous trip. Working your way across the Fertile Crescent was well known as a travel route to be beset by marauders. And this caravan is going to be carrying a huge amount of money. So Ezra says, I was embarrassed to ask the king for a military escort because Ezra had expressed complete confidence in God's protection. How can I tell the king this and then ask him for an escort of soldiers to go before us? That wouldn't have been wrong for the soldiers to go with them. But Ezra said, I'm in a spot here where I must trust in God alone. It was a very, very risky mission for all of these people. Reminds me also when the pilgrims boarded their two ships for the new world, Pastor John Robinson preached from this verse. Of all the Bible, as you're going to send out this 100-some members of your congregation onto the open seas in a small ship, what verse do you choose? He chooses this verse, verse 21. In preaching on that sermon, he knelt on the deck of the speedwell. The speedwell went with them at first with the Mayflower, but turned around because it was untrustworthy. It sped well, but it didn't float all that well. So they sent it back. But at that moment, he's on the speed well, and he knelt on the deck and prayed for God's mercies for these pilgrims on this voyage. And Pastor Robinson, as Bradford later describes the scene, quote, with watery cheeks, commended them with most fervent prayers to the Lord and His blessing. There is indeed a practice among God's people of praying for journeying mercies. In fact, the uh, Jews today, there is a formal ritual prayer before certain kinds of lengthy journeys. You can look at it on YouTube and find soldiers in a tank praying that prayer in Hebrew before they cross a border into harm's way. It reminds us of Acts 13 as Paul and Barnabas went out on their trip. There was fasting and prayer as they were committed to the Lord and given to Him in trust and confidence. It is something that we practice as a church. And let's remember this as we do so. It's not ritual, but it identifies us with God's people. And it says to uh, us, and, and we express as a church, that we are utterly dependent on the Lord. As mission trips and individuals representing our church travel throughout the world each year, we often bring them here at, the, at this central place in this auditorium, and we pray for them, asking God to give them traveling mercies and to prosper their work. When we take these mission trips of varying sorts, there is much that can go wrong. And there is much that can go right. And so we, like Ezra, fast and pray and plead with God to bless the journey of His people. 
I think in some unique sense, we even do this every week. This is not a biblical demand that we have a moment of silence here in our congregation. But I think it is a good practice. And in some sense, it is that kind of a moment where we are preparing for the journey to leave God's Word here and the safety of this congregation in this moment to go out into this world. And we plead with God for journeying mercies. Much can go wrong and much can go right. We need God. And we rejoice to say it and to pray. And Ezra did as this great leader We're not talking about a weak man here, but one who is leading this group of 5,000 people 900 miles with much responsibility, with great training, and with courage and zeal. He leads them on this long trip, but he will stop here and fast and pray because he knows everything hinges on God's grace. Do you? In the journeys that we take, how many of them we enter onto with no sense of the need of God. It's pure folly. We're rebuked, we're reminded, we're encouraged to join with them in prayers for the journey. The next item of business as they prepare for the journey is assigning responsibility for the valuables that will be going with them. Notice how this is dealt with, verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels. Vessels, gifts that would be used in the service of the temple, the offerings for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. So free will offerings coming from God's people as well as from Babylonian, Babylonia, the Persians there. I weighed out, verse 28, verse 26, I'm sorry. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. This is an immense amount of wealth. So great, many commentators suggest that there has to be some type of copying error on the numbers that are here. But perhaps, I wouldn't say that'd be impossible, but I think a better explanation is that we have a a very wealthy environment and we have gifts coming from the secular authorities who are the power brokers in Persia at the time. We're right here in uh, in, uh, Babylon, in that area where all this power and wealth would be. They are giving, plus all of the Israelites, God's people, are able to give free will offerings. There's an immense amount of wealth that's being transferred into their hands here. With that wealth, there is, of course, two dangers. The first danger is robbery along the way, a true problem, and embezzlement from within. And so, Ezra places this immense amount of wealth into the hands of the priests and Levites. They are authorized by God to handle it, and by it being measured... When they arrive in Jerusalem, God willing, it will all be measured out, it will all be weighed, and it will be determined whether or not they fulfilled their stewardship. Verse 28, guard them and keep them. There's the stewardship. There's the command. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. They're going to get from here to there. You're responsible to get it there, and we will determine whether it's all arrived in good shape. Guard them and keep them. And so, verse 30, the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So Levites have been found. They have sought in prayer and fasting the support of God. 
And the wealth that is necessary for this whole program has been placed in the hands of faithful stewards. And the journey begins. It begins in verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Hava in the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. It said they had left on the first day, but obviously at that encampment there's been some time that passes. And the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem and there we remained for three days. 900 miles. Four long months. And this unprotected caravan loaded down with riches makes it. They were never attacked, I think is the indication of the Hebrew text. God answered the prayers of the fasting Jews, granting them protection and success. And we see the accounting is fulfilled there in verse 33. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hand of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jazabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. And the whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. And because nothing's mentioned, they made it. Everything got there. All is accounted for. All of the wealth and the riches have made it on this 900-mile journey, and it's all now been delivered to the temple at Jerusalem and placed within the storage rooms. Where it is secured... And where now these Levites who got it there are going to become the guards and protect it. An amazing journey. Just a brief thought here when we consider the transfer of this wealth and the fulfillment of this accounting. We're reminded of a biblical theme that gifts given to God are always given by the free will offerings of his people, there is a tithe in the Old Testament. But in situations like this, they're always given free will. And when gifts are given to God by his people to spread his name, they are to be handled with detailed care and uncompromising integrity. The counting of such resources, their transfer and their deposit is a stewardship of holy things. Holy things devoted to God. And how I give thanks, and we perhaps are wise to stop here and give thanks to the deacons who are chosen by this assembly for the time-consuming task that requires their careful attention to detail and requires their integrity as they count and transfer and deposit the gifts of God's people. It's a different scene and scenario. Deacons are not Levites. But there's a connection here. The church is to care with integrity for the gifts of God's people. And as they arrive now in Jerusalem at the temple, there are sacrifices that are offered, which we might expect. Verse 35, at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel. Ninety-six rams, divisible by twelve. Seventy-seven lambs. And as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. The mission was complete. The people had arrived. The temple workers were here. Ezra the scribe was now to begin to teach the people of God in a unique way so that they would understand his word. And what do they do? They sacrifice, burnt offerings, wholly consumed in praise of God, and sin offerings are offered here as well. What is a sin offering? A sin offering is offered to cover the sins of God's people. 
Ezra hoped to reinvigorate the worship of God's people and thus to magnify God's holy name. The sacrificial system sent the message that God must be approached on His terms. He must be approached with sacrifice for sin. And while those who break God's law are worthy of death, what we find here in very elementary terms is that God provides a way for an animal to substitute for the sinner and to atone for that sinner's disobedience to God. It's ancient text. We're on the other side of the cross, but this is good news. It is good news that there is a sacrifice for sins that God provides. Those who break God's law are worthy of death. But we have here a start of the good news that there is sacrifice that substitutes for the sinner. And we see now those sacrifices and the, the smoke rising from the hill in Jerusalem, the holy hill as the holy things have arrived. Now on a level of spiritual example, which is one of the reasons that Ezra 8 is given to us. We find great lessons here. On a level of spiritual example, Ezra, his return challenges us as believers to adopt the heart of a pilgrim. In the decision of these Israelites, we learn that the heart of a pilgrim is characterized by a willingness, and I'll say these three things again, they're overlapping, they're interlocking, but the first is to let go of ease and safety. We're to be willing to let go of what is easy and safe and pleasurable. Secondly, to accept the considerable risks of adventure for the advance of Christ's cause. And thirdly, to put oneself in situations where I must depend entirely upon the grace and power of the Lord. That's the life of a pilgrim. That's not the life of a normal person. That's not how you go about life. So he asks, well, what motivates that? Clearly, there's got to be motivations behind this kind of orientation to life. Indeed, there are, and we could list many. But let me just say two. The first motivation is a hatred of idolatry. Ease. Possessions. Security. Family. Friends. Pleasure. All of these good things have the power to become ultimate things. They thus have the power to become our functional gods. And therefore to enslave us and to keep us from letting go of them and accepting risk and throwing ourselves in dependence upon God. They may not be evil in themselves, but when we learn to see ourselves as God's journeying people, when we embrace heaven as our homeland, we release our death grip on earthly blessings. And we are then willing to sacrifice these securities to honor God by spreading His fame and building up His church. This is why pilgrims leave their homeland to proclaim the gospel cross-culturally. They let go of what everybody else is depending on to go into a situation in which they must depend on God alone. We don't typically welcome those situations by nature, but pilgrims do. This is why believers take on the risk of reaching their neighbors and workmates with the gospel. There's a risk there. There's a danger there. But we take that on because we're not clinging to this world as our ultimate hope and we're not clinging to idols. This is why people give time and money willingly to the cause of Christ. They refuse to turn earth's blessings into idols. And how often have we heard it? There's the church again trying to get more money. That's the words of idolaters. They don't know the joy of letting it go. They don't know the joy of contributing the wealth that God has given me anyway to advance His name and His cause. Pilgrims do. They say, watch me. I'll let it go. I'll put it into use for God's purposes. That's one motivation, is a hatred of idolatry, a refusal to be dictated to 
by the blessings of this earth. But secondly, and the flip side, it is a love for God and the display of His glory. This is not cliche. Loving God and displaying His glory orders the thoughts and the actions and the goals of true pilgrims. They live out their life looking for such opportunities. They know they have eternity as their inheritance. They know that God did not spare His own Son in order to save them. And so they know that He loves them eternally. We sang of this truth this morning together. God's eternal, never-ending love in Christ. And this realization reorders their priorities to serve Him, not self. That's one of the grand motivations. To serve Him and not me. The pilgrim heart does not commend recklessness as such, but it celebrates boldness for God. It celebrates setting self aside to advance His cause and serve His honor. It rejoices to trust Him alone as we risk time and talent and treasure to spread His truth and build up His church. Giving to the church and its mission Investing time in building up the body of Christ. Daring to speak for Christ to unbelievers. And in innumerable other ways, giving self away to serve the Lord. We see all this in Ezra 8. This pilgrim heart. But our consideration of Ezra 8 must move beyond the example and the challenge that we find in Ezra and his pilgrim band. That's there. But Ezra 8 is accomplishing much more in the larger story than simply saying, look at what these guys did. Isn't that great? Follow them. It's saying something so much larger. The purpose of Ezra 8 in the grand scheme of redemption is to advance God's plan of salvation. Ground zero for that plan is the hill skirted by two deep valleys on which Jerusalem sits and where these exiles returned. Here, at this place, not in Babylonia, but here, in God's providential purposes and saving grace, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, finding then ultimately the substitute ram provided by God. Here, that happened. Here, Solomon built his temple and the glory descended in the Holy of Holies. Here was the presence of the glory of God on earth for a time. And here in Jerusalem at this temple, at least in this airspace, is where our Lord will teach God's law, stunning the rabbis as early as age 12, and rebuking the nation as He cleans out that area, and healing and blessing those in need, and proclaiming the Gospel. Ezra was a great teacher who is going to, to enforce the law, build up the temple where Jesus will ultimately minister in this same place. The ultimate pilgrim theme is not the exodus from Egypt. The ultimate pilgrim theme is not the return of exiles under Zerubbabel or Ezra or the pilgrims crossing the Atlantic in the Mayflower. The ultimate pilgrim heart beat in the chest of Jesus of Nazareth who left the security and the splendor not of Babylonia, not of Egypt, but of heaven itself. Leaving that splendor, that ease, that security, that eternal wealth to come and take on flesh and live among us. That's the pilgrim heart. Though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. He took on the adventurous risk of becoming poor, weak, despised, vulnerable, that he might make us eternally rich. This was a risky venture. An infant child totally dependent 
on God's grace in a hostile world, in a world where kings were out to find him and kill him as an infant, a king, Herod. But in dependence upon God, this infant Christ grew and lived a sinless life. He taught at the temple God's word with a fullness and a richness that no one had ever heard before. And he died on a nearby hill, Calvary, and rose from the dead here in Jerusalem. He became the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice on Mount Zion. And so as Ezra's sacrifices are burning, and the smoke is ascending to God as a pleasing aroma of worship, it will be here ultimately, everything pointing back here where Jesus Christ will give His life as the Lamb of God, the ultimate payment for sin. And so I think even in Ezra 8, it is a very fair and right question to ask with the whole track of salvation history, have you placed your trust in Christ as your substitute sacrifice for sin? Have you trusted in His death and in His resurrection to pay the penalty of your sin and give you eternal life? In the truest Christ-following sense of the term. Pilgrims venture out then on mission for God, wiggling free of the chains of idolatry. They repent of their idolatrous self-dependence. They trust in what Christ has done for them, and it is their honor to serve Him the rest of their life. They do not count their lives dear to themselves. They find life in dying for the kingdom of God. You might have noticed in your bulletin, Taliban gunmen recently attacked a compound in Afghanistan that housed a U.S.-based educational organization. South African Werner Gronwald was killed in that attack along with his 17-year-old son and 15-year-old daughter. Their crime was that the Taliban were convinced that when people asked them for a hope, for the hope that was in them, they told them about Jesus. Crucified and risen. And for that, they gave their lives. Colleagues reported that Werner closed his last training session with a group of international co-workers with these words. His last training session, he said, We only die once. So it might as well be for Jesus. That's a pilgrim heart. That's a pilgrim heart. I'm sure a normal man with normal problems and typical sins, but a man who said, I will not hold unto the idolatries of this world to keep me from serving the King of Kings. No matter what that costs, and it cost him, his son, and his daughter their lives. This world is not our home. And so we invest life the best way we know how to shine light on the glory of God. In the end, such pilgrims pray that their journey will be a blessing to others and a contribution to the magnification of God's splendor in this very, very dark world. By God's grace, He rescued us from sin that we might live that kind of life. Let's live it. Let's live with the heart of a pilgrim. Our Father, we don't have that strength on our own. So we come to you in prayer yet again and plead that you would help us to let go of the securities of this world to take risk for your kingdom and your glory, for your name and the spread of your gospel. I pray that you would so move and motivate each of us. I pray that we would respond to what you have done to save us as your people. And that we would walk worthy of your name. We thank you for Ezra. We thank you for all those who answered the call. 
and made that difficult journey all part of the plan to point this world to the ministry of Jesus Christ and the start and creation of a new temple, the people of God, saved by Christ's death and resurrection to represent Him in this world. What an honor it is for us to do so and how much we cling to in this world idolatrously and foolishly. But we ask, Lord, that you would, even through the ministry of the Word today, cleanse us and draw us away from our trust idolatrously in the blessings of this life. And I pray that by your grace, you would teach us to have a pilgrim heart. I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior and do not know what they're missing and do not know the danger that is ahead for those who enter eternity on their own merits. I pray that you would bring them to Christ the Savior and to see in Him their hope and their life and their eternal reward. And we pray that you do so today. We ask that the gospel would go forward tonight in a unique way as we gather again. And we pray that you would use us as your servants to continue to proclaim that message of Christ of Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. To this end, we plead with you and dedicate ourselves, resting on your power and strength. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please stand with me and let's consider in silence, am I a pilgrim? Are you a pilgrim? Am I living like a pilgrim? Are you living like a pilgrim? Let's just think on this word in silence together. singing together.